That moment in the middle of a song when you swallow <laughs> and then you just lose track. You understand, right, Mike? Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. All righty. Um, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to uh, Isaiah chapter 33. If you do not have your Bible, it will all be behind me on the screen. Um, and we're going to go over the second half of Isaiah 33 today. We went through verses 1 through 16 last week, and we saw how um, God is going to be gracious with his people, and that we, we learned um, how the people have been trying to make peace with the world and how that never worked. It doesn't ever work. And so God is going to come and he's going to redeem his people um, and he's going to be the one who protects them. Um, and we're going to see more about what that means today, about how this, this knowledge of God's salvation and who this God is that has been calling to his people over and over again, um, what does he look like? What are his characteristics? And we're going to see a little bit of that today. Um, and so we'll get to our maps because I love this map. Um, and again, the, the big issue here is Syria, Assyria. We're actually going to see in, I think, two chapters what Assyria is doing, um, how they are affecting the southern kingdom of Judah, how they've already taken over Israel, um, and Hezekiah in particular, his relationship with Assyria and how it just breaks down. Go ahead to the next map. Yep. And then we see how they've pretty much conquered everything at the, in the known world at the time. Um, and then the third map just shows us more distinctly Judah and Israel. And here's the Mediterranean. And here's Jerusalem, and that's where Isaiah is. He's proclaiming these truths to, at the time, both Israel and Judah before Israel gets destroyed and scattered. Um, and so it's, it's a pretty crazy world that Isaiah lives in and the prophets, but it's really no different, I guess, than today. Um, still, it's interesting stuff to me. I hope it's interesting to you because you keep learning about it every week. <laughs> Alrighty, so going to Isaiah 33, verses 17 through 20. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. So now we see a minor shift as Isaiah depicts what will occur. Indeed, the concept of seeing is utilized four times in three verses if we include verse 20, um, behold. In any case, the question we must ask is, what will the people see? Indeed, what will they experience? The answer is the king and his beauty. In the Hebrew, there is no definitive article uh, or definite article before king. As such, it is as much the ultimate concept of king as it is a historic person. They will see the perfect embodiment of king in his beauty. Not only that, but the kingdom of this king stretches afar. That is, the land that the king possesses is, is great, um, which is in contrast to what they see now, which is a very small kingdom in Judah. Verse 18 shows a reflection of the people. Whereas the terror had gripped them and they experienced the pangs that come with the terror of a great enemy, Assyria, now they only muse about it. Um, they reflect on the time previously when their terror had gripped their hearts. 
When stronger nations sought control over Judah and Israel, it often led to them becoming little more than vassal states to those stronger nations. This often led to those nations demanding tribute for not invading and conquering the land. As we have discussed previously, and as we will see in the upcoming chapters, such a tribute did not stop the Assyrians from invading Judah. Still, with the terror in the past, so too are elements which accompanied the terror. There was a time when tribute was demanded. Now there is none who demand a tribute, and there is none who count the tribute before it gets sent to another co- another's coffers. When it comes to he who counted the towers, it may reflect those who uh, conquered count, uh, counting with towers to destroy upon invasion. Ultimately, such things are in the past. They don't experience the, the people collecting tribute. They don't expe- uh, experience the counters. They don't experience those who are counting even uh, the, the fortresses that are, will be overtaken. Verse 19 continues the you will see motif. It, in a way, shows the opposite of what they will see, which is the king and his beauty. Now they will no longer see insolent people, people who had sought their destruction, people who had a language unfamiliar to them. Those foreign invaders will no longer trouble the people. They will see Jerusalem, the city of peace, finally at peace, the immovable tent and whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor any of its cords be broken is interesting. This may be a reflection of the fact that Jerusalem housed the temple and the Ark of the Covenant. Prior to the temple being built, the ark was part of the camp as the Jewish people wandered in the desert. In this sense, the foundation of Jerusalem would be immovable. And since Jerusalem was where the people met God, then that means the place where humans meet God will be set in stone. Um, And I do think we see this with Jesus as he dies in Jerusalem later um, in his life. Now we're going to come to verses 21 and finish up this chapter. But the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, and the Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. I find interesting these verses. It's such a strange concept when you look at Jerusalem on the map and it's in the middle of the land. Um, Anyway, if Jerusalem is secured, then that means that it is there that the Lord will be. If he is there, then so is his majesty. Isaiah reflects that since this is the case, the Lord is for the people. Hence, there is security for the people. While broad rivers could accommodate a naval attack, in this case, the flowing waters are blessed from God as he protects his people. Verse 22 is the foundational piece for this whole section. They have been constantly challenged on who they will rely on for their protection, the other nations or God. Now the truth is revealed that only one who can sustain them, and that is God. He is their judge, the one who protects and defends what is good and right. He is the lawgiver, the one who defines what is good and right. He is the king, the one who reigns and protects the people themselves. He is the one who saves them from their distress, for only he is capable. Verse 23 is interesting, and it can either relate to Assyria or Judah. If it is Assyria, it implies that the nation is a sinking ship. It is unable to sustain, and as such, it will quickly be going down to drown. 
the result of this is that those who were once powerful are the prey, and they provide a spoil, a spoil that the weakest will be even be able to claim. Conversely, it could still relate to Judah. In this sense, without God, they are the sinking ship, and even weak nations in comparison with God will be able to over- overwhelm them. In the end, both points are the same. God is the one who is powerful, and any other power or potential salvation is incomparable. The once strong cannot stand against God's eternal greatness. Yet as we have seen previously, God is the true king. It is because he is the king that the inhabitants will no longer feel the physical or spiritual pangs which accompany this life. They will be healed of their infirmities, and their sins will be forgiven. The final point reminds us that God does not only want to deal with the physical infirmities, but also the spiritual. He will provide total deliverance for the people. So the main point of these verses are to show the total reality of the king. He will be the foundation for their justice, for goodness, as well as the one who keeps them on the path of justice and righteousness. In the end, he will protect and provide for his people all that they need physically, but also spiritually as even their sins are forgiven by the lawmaker. So in today's text, we see a glimpse of something quite grand. Isaiah proclaims to the people that despite the many struggles and failures of the people, they will come to experience and therefore know truth. This truth is found in the fact that God exists and that he enacting his will in the world shows this. By knowing God then, they are capable of knowing so much more. Indeed, Isaiah recognizes that the knowledge of God is foundation for knowledge in other things. This should be something which gives us a great amount of joy. In knowing God, it truly does lead to a stable foundation upon which all knowledge can be attained and understood. One would even argue that if we can know anything, it is only because God exists. As it is, we do know things, therefore God must exist. But what are some things that we know? Well, one would argue that we know the very things which Isaiah describes in this chapter. Consider the first. You will see the king in his beauty. Some may wonder about this, his beauty. What on earth does beauty have to do with God Almighty? Yet when we consider it, what is beauty? Often we are told beauty is in the eye of the beholder. In other words, beauty is often described as subjective. Perhaps this is true in some ways. There are some who look up at the night sky and think it is beautiful. Others don't. I think like that though. Others behold flowers and think, oh, how beautiful. I I really don't. (laughs) do that one as much. Still others look at other humans and see beauty there. In this sense, there's some essence of beauty within each of these things. God, likewise, possesses this essence. For while God is great and mighty, he is also beautiful. Some may still wonder, but let's consider it when we consider people. Oftentimes in our society, women are considered beautiful for having this or that physical attribute. Yet when we get to know such women, we find them somewhat toxic on the inside. The phrase, beauty is skin deep, comes to mind. Yet consider another. Consider a woman who does not have those same physical attributes. That would be considered beautiful. Instead, she is one of those who has godliness. She is patient, kind, loving, peaceful. 
When we think of women in our lives who are like this, we find ourselves admiring them for their godliness and we conclude they are beautiful. Indeed, there is beauty there. Now this isn't to say that you must choose between one or the other. I know that there are women who enjoy feeling beautiful, whether that means wearing a dress or sweatpants and a t-shirt or driving a truck. I don't know. I don't know what you, you all find beautiful in yourselves. But I also know that married women often like to get dressed up and they like to go out on dates with their husbands because they feel a sense of beauty in dressing up. There's nothing wrong with feeling beauty in such a way. But there is a warning. There have been times when women have been told they must look a certain way in order to attain beauty. This is where we need to be cautious. It is true there is some form of beauty in physical appearance, but that is not the only form of beauty, nor the only form of beauty that we can attain. Instead, godliness is beautiful in its own right, with an added benefit that while physical beauty fades over time, the beauty found in godliness only grows more profound and radiant the older you become. Why is that? Because seeking godliness is a lifelong pursuit. You learn as you get older. You learn to pray. You learn to love. Learn to have peace. Learn self-control. The more you learn, the more beauty abounds. Thus, the older women of the congregation, while feeling the age, can often appear to those of us who are younger as far more beautiful than they were when they were younger because of their continued godly characters. Not only this, but such beauty does not ever diminish. We consider the beauty of God and it does not fade because it is his essence. As we mature in our faith and seek godliness in our lives, such beauty abounds in us as well. And the more we grow, the more it grows and it does not ever fade. So the text describing God as beautiful makes perfect sense. Now before I, all right, I'm going to pause. Before I go on any further, I've been, I've been focusing on the women, right? Um, and the reason for that is for three reasons. The first is that culturally, when we think of the word beautiful, it's often associated with feminine attributes. So, like, usually you don't think, oh, that man is so beautiful. Dan, I don't know, sometimes you, you're a beautiful man. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Usually, usually you think women, right? That's what we just associate. The second is, um, when we talk about, let's say, getting dressed up, let's be real. Men are only seeking to look presentable, <laughs> if we're honest. I hate to say that, but it's true. Women always look presentable. They're always up here. We're always down here like cavemen just trying to get even there. Women, though, can always go the step further in in their beauty. Men just, we can't. Um, I think that's reality. And then the third, I think, is just that, you know, if you're a married man and you kind of look at your wife and you often think to yourself, you know, she doesn't need to get dressed up to look beautiful. She's just beautiful in her own right. Um, and so there's that sense in which men just kind of just have a different, I think, association with beauty than women. That's why I've been focusing on women in that. It's not that I don't think men have an issue with it. I think that we kind of do, but I just want us to see that women don't let the culture decide what beauty is. God decides that. Because um, the culture will try to beat you down. And that's a sad thing. Still, let's continue. What else does this text tell us um, and say about God? Well, he is our judge. This is significant. That the Lord is judge implies that he is the one who protects. This word judge is the same one used to describe the judges during the judges period. The one who brought the people back to God and protected them from their enemies. God is such a judge as this. 
Yet I think it also goes further in that he defends what is good, what is right. He does not judge haphazardly, but does so according to his own godly character. As such, he is capable of showing us how to defend others and how we should stand up for what is right. Thus, we are able to learn from him how to do that which he does. And we also know without knowledge of him, we would be incapable of knowing what to stand up for around us. The third to consider is that God is lawgiver. Generally speaking, when we consider law, whether American or biblical, etc., law implies what we can and should uh, be done and what can't and shouldn't be done. The purpose of law is to separate darkness from light, what is evil from what is good. All law is built with these things in mind. Yet this does not mean that all law is the same or that all law is automatically good. We have seen societies in which evil laws have been enacted for the detriment of the people. We saw this with slavery in the U.S., with the rise of Nazism in Germany, communistic ideals in the Soviet Union, and even today with various countries utilizing laws to suppress and oppress their people. Um, We're seeing this especially true, interestingly enough, in Canada. Has anyone heard about that church in Canada recently? The one where they're like, they just said, no, you can't gather. And then they kept on gathering. And then the state decided to put a wall around the church to keep them from getting in. Um, It's weird that we don't don't think about that happening in the West, but it's actually happened in Canada not that long ago. Um, Now the question is, by what right do we or does anyone have to critique such laws? In our subjective world, it is increasingly difficult to say something is immoral, bad, not good. There are many who look at Christians as being moral judges who shouldn't speak in the public square about what should be lawful since they are biased toward belief in God. Granted, when we then argue that they are biased and not believing in God, it destroys that argument. Everyone has a presupposition, and Christians deserve a right at the table as anyone else in society. Yet again, how do we base our conclusions? Who is right? One would argue that the only way to base law is if there is a lawgiver. If there is one who is perfect, holy, and able to discern what is good, then such a person would be able to give laws that are just. As it is, such a one exists, and that is God. As such, the reason we are able to speak up about law is that the foundation we have for law for what is good, what is just, what is moral, is founded not in our own principles or ideas, but in God himself. For he is good, he is just, he is moral, and he is able to provide law, which flows from his holy character. The final description of God in this text is that he is king. In this sense, he has the authority to enact laws. He has the strength to protect. He has the power to forgive. A monarch has absolute power over their kingdom. What is God's kingdom? Well, it's all things over the whole of reality of the cosmos our God reigns. When we consider his kingship from the perspective Isaiah gives, it should not surprise us the prophet continually urges the people to turn toward him. If Assyria seems great and all their enemies seems mighty, then simply compare them to the living God. And once you do, you realize they are utterly impotent when compared to God. The same is true when it comes to the great enemies of humanity, sin, guilt, and death. For our sins, we are guilty before a holy and righteous God. And because of this, we deserve the punishment of sin and guilt, which is death. Indeed, the debt we owe is great. Yet with any kingdom, the king is able to forgive debts to forgive guilt. There is only one king, however, who can forgive us of sin and guilt, which leads to death. 
He has the accomplishedness through his son, Jesus Christ. Indeed, he has provided the law, which acknowledges our guilt, and yet has provided the judge by which we will be protected, and he has done all this under his own sovereignty. This is the great truth of the gospel, and this is the great reality which we can embrace. That God, despite being able to judge us in our sins, has redeemed us from them through his son, Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin that we might live. Indeed, it is this redemption we know the prophet spoke the truth. Throughout the prophetic ministries, they all said, Turn to God, believe, repent, and find salvation. The people rejected over and over and over again. How do we know that the prophet spoke the truth? Well, the answer is in Jesus. For he was faithful in all things. He was obedient in all things, even to death on the cross. He followed his father's will. Did he suffer despite? Yes. Was he tempted? Yes. Did he die? Yes. But what occurred? He brought salvation through his life, death and resurrection for all who would believe. He died, true, but he also now lives. He is the embodiment of an Israel and Judah who never went astray. And now through him, we are able to attend the feast. We can say, where are the counters? We can rejoice because we know we will have no more illness. And we know our sins cannot separate us from God should we believe in Christ because he was perfect and he has redeemed us. Because he did what we could not do, we now can live. And the beauty of the gospel continues to shine as well. As we move forward then, and as we experience this world with its many pitfalls and its many obstacles, the many ways the world seeks to discourage us in our faith, let us remain faithful to the truth. For our leaders leads us, for our leader leads us on and on, and he will never lead us astray. Praise God for his deliverance, for his redemption, and praise God that he is the judge, the lawgiver, and the king forever and always. And I think we can kind of see the gospel in all of this. Um, The gospel of Jesus reminds us of the fact that we all are made in the image of God. That is where all things come, from God. He is the first cause of all the universe. From him, all that we experience came to be. Um, In order for the universe to begin, it is necessary for something to cause it to begin. It can't just cause itself. Um, And we're reading a book, Dan and Mike and those of us who are in men's group are reading a book and he has a famous quote that Dan likes, uh, that the Big Bang needs a big banger in that way because in order for it to even begin, if it does begin that way, it still needs something to cause it. Um, And so whenever people say, well, I believe in the Big Bang, well, it doesn't matter because you still need something to cause that to begin to happen to begin with. And whether we believe that or not, it's still a problem for them to face. So regardless, we see this whole universe and we think about the design of it all and we think about the beauty of it all and we think about how wonderful it is and then we look at ourselves and we realize we're quite different from everything else. Why is that? And that's because we've been made in the image of God. That each person, whether male or female, no matter their race, no matter the color of their skin, in the end, we're all made in the image of God. If we are humans, we are made in his image. And we all have dignity, sanctity, and worth to life because of this, because we have been so uniquely and wonderfully made by him. But then that's the problem. Because the problem is, is that if we've been made in God's image, we also have the ability to choose. And in our choices, we very often choose to follow sin 
and death rather than God Almighty. And we see this in our culture today. We see it throughout the world, throughout history, that humanity continues to choose what they think is powerful rather than choose God. And they want the power for themselves. And so even if that means stealing, even if that means lying, even if that means murdering other people in order to attain power, we're willing to do it. And that's a serious problem. And we are all guilty of these things. We may not have murdered the way that some people have murdered, but Jesus says if you've said, I hate you, then in your heart you've murdered somebody. And if you've looked at another person, you've lusted after them, that means you've committed adultery in your heart. So Jesus actually makes the bar a lot higher as the lawgiver. And he says, you know what? We're still not there because this is how great God is. And we don't compare ourselves to each other. We compare ourselves to God. And when we compare ourselves to God, we are found wanting. We are worthy of judgment. We're worthy because we're sinful people. But what do we find in today's text? Though we may be in our sin, though we may be deserving of judgment, though we may have been even enemies of God, we find redemption in God. And that Jesus is sent to live, die, and rise again in time, space, history, and flesh. And in doing this, he has brought us redemption. That beautiful, beautiful redemption. So that we are no longer enemies of God. We are no longer even created, just simply created. We are now children of God through Jesus Christ. Through what he has accomplished. And we rejoice. It's why we gather together is because of what he has done. It's not about what I've done. I'm a sinful person. I've failed miserably. But Christ has not. He has accomplished. He has succeeded where I always failed. And where does it lead? It leads to us experiencing a king who is beautiful. A king who is worthy of worship. A king who gives a great law. A king who is worth experiencing. A king worth following. Even with my life. Even with your life. And that king promises us eternal life forever. With him. We talk about things that are beautiful. I think that this is the most beautiful thing in the world. It's the whole concept of what we find in Christianity, what we find in Jesus, with our very God, and with ourselves. So I think that we have incredible hope, no matter what may occur. We have incredible hope because we know that Jesus truly did live, die, and rise again. And we know that we do truly have redemption. Let that be what we seek with our lives. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is worth so much more than we could even begin to imagine. That the redemption that you give is perfect. There's nothing we can add to it. All we can do is partake. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to remind us of the feast that you would continue to remind us of who you are because you are the foundation for all these things, for all that is good. And Lord, if we continue to be faithful, we know that you will lead us on into glory. So Lord, continue to lead us. Continue to guide us. 
Continue to give us faith and grace and mercy because we need it. And Lord, continue to give us your strength for these dark days. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.